there's so many moving parts right now. And what I do know is that the world's going to look very different in the next 10 years than the last 20 or 30 years. It really feels to me like we're, we're going through some major regime change in the last two, three years. And, you know, when you go through a major regime change, all you know is something big is going to happen. But it's hard to specify exactly what, what that will be. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. It's a great pleasure for me today to be joined by Bilal Hafiz. Bilal is the founder, CEO and head of research at MacroHive. MacroHive is a leading independent provider of macro and financial market research. And Bilal has been in the markets a number of decades. Uh, before founding MacroHive, he held a number of senior research and strategy roles at leading investment banks. So. Bilal, good to see you. Good to uh, be talking to you today. How is all on your side? It's very good. And thanks for a very kind introduction and, and great, great to uh, uh, connect with you. Great stuff. Well, as is typical with these uh, podcasts and, and the uh, Top Traders Unplugged, we, we, we always ask people to give a bit of background on their journey into the markets, how they ended up in financial markets, etc. And the role to your current, um, current position, I guess. Yeah, so in terms of my my, my sort of background, uh, you know, if I kind of go even very sort of far back, you know, I, I grew up in in Oxford in in the UK. Um, but as I always like to tell people, there's two sides to Oxford. There's the kind of the posh university side, you know, very upmarket, and then there's the other side, you know, which is less less picturesque and uh, you know more working class, uh, large immigrant population. And that's where I grew up. And so I grew up in an environment which didn't really know much about finance or financial industry. Um, but my parents were very focused on, on us kids getting a very good education. And so I was very uh, you know, focused academically and I did well academically. And I 
just by chance, I ended up really liking economics at school, at high school. And that was a subject I just got drawn to. And I ended up pursuing that university. I ended up going to Cambridge. So uh, obviously a great university. And, and that allowed me to just see what opportunities and what industries I could go on to work in. And banking was a natural one to, to, to focus on. And I, so I ended up getting an internship at JP Morgan in my, during my degree at Cambridge. This was back in 1997. Um, and I got hooked thereafter. So I got a graduate uh, job offer from them. And so then I started at JP Morgan uh, in 1998, uh, just as the Russia crisis was was kicking off. Um, and I was at JP Morgan for about four years. Um, I was in foreign exchange research, um, which I really, really enjoyed. And I did a lot of work at the time on emerging market devaluations, which were occurring in 97. Um, and then we had some further devals in 98, 99 as well. Then I left uh, JP Morgan in 2002 to join Deutsche Bank, uh, which is the company I had my longest stretch at. I, I worked there for 13 years. So I had various different roles there. Initially, I was in foreign exchange research, where I ran research there. I During that time there, and this was in, in an environment with lighter regulation, I built lots of trading models, which we ended up turning into indices. I ran a prop book as well. So as well as doing research, I also was, was managing risk as well. Then the global financial crisis sort of struck and that sort of changed everything. Banks got more regulated. Everyone had to kind of go back to their, sort of their core roles. I, I then moved to Asia where I ran a research out of Singapore for a number of years. So that gave me a, a lot of exposure to Asia and China in particular. Um, of course, immediately after the financial crisis, China really stood out as you know the the powerhouse of the world at the time. Uh, then I came back to London in 2012, where I set up a, a multi-asset uh, research team, and that was the time when. On the asset management side, there was a massive interest in uh, multi-asset funds. So lots of these kind of more traditional long-only type uh, asset managers started to pivot to multi-asset. Um, and so I created a research product to kind of match you know, that, that type of demand. Um, I also had an additional role where I ran a research group, which was servicing the CEO of Deutsche Bank, which kind of gave me this sort of high-level exposure to how a bank is actually run from a management perspective. Then 2016, I moved to Nomura, where I ran research out of London, uh, Nomura for three years. Um, that was a great experience. Uh, but then in 2019, I decided, look, I'd spent over 25 years working for big banks, and it was time for me to strike out on my own with a number of, uh, with a few others. And uh, we set up MacroHive, uh, which is essentially an independent research company. And, and, you know, the rationale for doing that was I just found doing research within a bank was becoming harder, partly because there was less resource dedicated to research, but also it was harder to talk. Weirdly, it was harder to talk to people within a bank. If you're in research, there's all these Chinese walls. You're not allowed to talk to traders until after you publish a note. You can't speak to people at other banks because there might be collusion or perceptions of collusion. Um, but I find doing good research requires you to be quite well networked. You have to be speaking to smart people all the time from all sorts of different fields. And only then can you really come up with great ideas. So the DNA of MacroHive is very much like that. You know, we're, we're highly networked. Uh, we have a strong in-house research team, but we network with other smart people on the outside. And then we basically offer research to institutional investors, um, you know, asset allocators, uh, hedge funds, asset managers. And then we also have another product which is more geared towards private or retail investors uh, as well. And so I've been doing that for three years. Very good. So, uh, I mean, I, 
I guess a big part of your approach is this network, as you say, the, the hive of uh, of activity and being in the, embedded into that network. Um, so I guess you're, you're talking to lots of different hedge funds, institutional investors, etc. I mean, what would you say you're picking up in terms of the response of that community in, in, to, to what we've seen in markets this year. Obviously, everybody's been saying for a number of years, 60-40 is dead, and this is the year it's actually proved to be very difficult for, for your typical kind of balance mandate. What, what, what's the feedback? Are you picking up anything interesting in, in, how, in terms of how people are responding? Yeah, I mean, it's really quite interesting. It's quite polarized, I would say. So I would say hedge funds have really enjoyed this environment in some ways because they have the ability to go short. They're not tied to being long only. And so in some ways, they've kind of thrived in this environment. And also the environment's been very kind of macro as well. You know, we we have this inflation shock, interest rates have shot up, equities are weak. And so it's quite a good environment for macro hedge funds. So that segment has actually generally done quite well and enjoyed this type of environment. Now, in recent months, they found it harder because things have become a bit more two-way because the the market theme has shifted almost from inflation to recession. So that's provided some challenges. But generally speaking, I would say hedge funds in particular have actually found this year quite quite positive in, in many ways. However, most other investors, whether it's institutional investors, asset managers, asset allocators, have found it very, very difficult. And Obviously, some of the numbers we've seen this year, you know, where the the bond declines um, were some of the largest in 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 a long, long time, in centuries even, um, coupled with weak equities. So many of them are now at a point where uh, they're thinking almost at the existential level about what to do uh, in this environment. So, of course, they still have these massive assets, so they have to hold on to them and they can be underweight at markets to some extent, but it's hard for them to liquidate everything and go into cash. Um, but I have found there have been probably larger liquidations of uh, positions than before, than they would normally do. Um, at the same time, at least I would say for the past month or so, I've heard from more of them who've started to say, hang on, Yields are quite high now, so actually maybe we've seen the worst, and now we'll be able to hold on to five, six, seven percent yields in credit, say, which you know years ago we would have been salivating over. Um, so, so, so I would say on the asset holder side, it's it's been much more challenging, bigger questions over what they should what they should do, but at the same time, there's some recognition that maybe actually this is a good time to just stay stay in that. Yeah. I guess it's interesting. Um, you're kind of touching on that that the kind of dynamic of is it going to go back to the way it was, or are we into this kind of new new regime? Um, I mean, we might get to that in a little bit. But I mean, in terms of the, kind of the obvious question, uh, you know, how do you see it pan out maybe for the rest of the year? Kind of kind of the six twelve months. Obviously, as you say, the market has transitioned from focusing on inflation to probably focusing a bit more on growth at the moment. Where, where, where do you where do you stand in in kind of the economic outlook? Yeah, I mean, my my, my sense is that, you know, for sure there's a growth slowdown happening um, for all sorts of reasons, um, not least because central banks around the world are, are raising interest rates. But I still think we, we're we still in quite an inflationary environment. Um, and even if inflation does fall, it may not fall fast enough to go back towards the 2% target that central banks want. And so I would say that this is still the window, the next six months or even the next 12 months, which is the window for which central banks have the opportunity to really wring inflation out of the system. And if they don't, 
then they could end up with a more persistent inflation problem like we had in the 1970s. So my sense is that central banks are probably going to increase interest rates further and higher than most people think, which in the end will be bearish for bonds. So bonds will probably still underperform, uh, especially shorter dated bonds in the next six to 12 months. I also think that overall environment um, is bearish for equities as well, because not only are equities suffering from this growth slowdown and the possibility of this recession, but also if central banks are going to raise rates by more than people think, then that's obviously bad for equities as well. So overall, I think that the environment for 60-40 will still be quite poor or negative for the next six to 12 months. So I don't think we're, we're out of the woods yet. And I know uh, as part of your team, uh, you guys have been calling for Fed funds going as possibly as high as 8%, which um, when it came out first was a very dramatic call. Obviously, we're incrementally shifting towards that maybe as being a possibility. But um, I mean, I guess when you've come out with that call that you must have got a lot of pushback. So firstly, is that really a, a plausible scenario? And, um, you know, how likely do you think it is we could get to those kind of levels? Yeah, I mean, we, we had a lot of pushback around that all. Um, you know, we, we, we've evolved our view on inflation. So last year, we were probably less um, worried about inflation. But then as the picture changed, as we came into this year, we changed our view completely to say, look, this is this is more of an issue than we had anticipated. And obviously, Russia happened as well. And you know, in the end, we basically looked at the inflation picture. And when you're getting inflation of like 8, 9, 10%, you know, in the developed world, it's not unreasonable for policy rates to go up towards the level of inflation. Normally, what central banks do when you have inflation is that you you bring your policy rate up to the level of inflation or a bit higher so that real interest rates are positive. And so this 8% number we, we we mentioned sounds crazy, but at the same time, inflation's crazy as well. So I don't think it's an unreasonable number to have. Um, if, you, if you remember, if you go back to the late 70s, early 80s, Volcker raised interest rates to 20%, you know, when inflation was like 10, 12%. So that's one reference point. The other reference point, you know, we would I would have is that before the global financial crisis in, in the 2000s, the Fed raised rates starting in 2004, they started to raise rates and they raised rates up to 5.25%. Um, and back then, inflation was around 3 4% and the unemployment rate was higher than it is today. So if in an environment of lower inflation in 2000s and uh, a worse labor market, if the Fed raised rates to 525 back then, then surely they would raise it at least to 525 if not higher. So, so I do think there is a plausible case for us to at least get to 5%, um, if not 8%, which I think is based on the level of inflation more reasonable. Uh, in terms of the reaction, we've got a huge negative, I mean, huge reaction to that view. Most people would say, okay, maybe we could get to 4%, but 8% is way, way too high. Um, and at the same time, though, um, when we, uh, as the months have gone on, people have become more sympathetic. They may say that we may not go to eight, but they see maybe five is possible. So certainly people are coming around to this view more. Um, also, I think what helps is that what's been unusual about this rate hiking cycle is that uh, we've had equity an equity drawdown event this year. So equities are down over 20% this year. The Fed has never hiked rates during an equity drawdown before. You know, in the last 30, 40 years, they never have hiked during a drawdown. So something is different this time around. And one of the pushbacks we had to this view was that surely the Fed won't raise rates because equities would crater. Yet they have cratered and the Fed 
you know, in June, raised rates by 75 basis points and will probably continue to do at that clip going forward. So something has shifted there. Yeah. No, it's interesting. There's a lot to kind of get into in that whole area. I mean, you touch on a couple of things. Firstly, I mean, one thing that comes to mind, is it a behavioral bias um, in the market participants saying, you know, we all know about anchoring. Are we anchored to the idea that rates are going to be two, three, four percent and just eight percent is just not implausible. So do you think the pushback is as much behavioral or is it from an economic perspective? I suppose the dominant view in recent times has been, you know, the system would break if rates went up too much, you know, there's so much debt in the system, etc. Do you which of it do you think it's more behavioral or economic based? Yeah, I mean I think no, it's a great question. I think in the end, I think it's more behavioral than anything else. And more specifically, it's the fact that we've been in a low interest rate environment for like God knows how long, you know, at least since GFC. That's like 10 odd years we've been stuck in this low interest rate environment. And we're so addicted to that as investors that we always think that like in the end, we have to go back to low rates because when you have a sustained period of low interest rates, everybody kind of gets used to that. And all the people that benefited from it do well. And all the people who think that that's not the right system get filtered out by markets. And so to some extent, all the people who are in markets today who've been successful over the last 10 years are the ones that benefited from low rates. So the other aspect of the behavioral is that it's self-interest as well, because presumably they're long interest rate sensitive markets. And so they need low interest rates as well. From an economic perspective, I think that um, I think there's less of a case to be made for low interest rates in this environment. I mean, any economist, any credible economist would say you have to raise rates 6 7%. I mean, the Taylor rule, for example, has uh, the policy rate at between 8 to 10%, which is like a, you know, a classic uh, template to use. I think what doesn't help on the fundamental side is that the Fed themselves keep talking about the neutral rate around 2 2.5%. And so that anchors the market to to that level. Um, the the issue I have with that is, you know, there's an issue of real versus nominal, you know. So they're basically saying that, you know, they're assuming implicit with that neutral rate of two two and a half that inflation is down to two percent, so that real interest rates are 0.5. Um, but in reality, inflation is eight percent. So you know, right now, eight nine percent. So um, you know, so in real terms, the real neutral is is closer to eight or seven or something. So so I think there's 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 another issue of all of us getting so used to looking at everything in nominal terms when we have to look at everything in real terms because you're in an inflationary environment. Yes. And I mean, it's you, you touch on the point that the Fed has hiked in in the face of equity market weakness, which, as you say, is unprecedented in our. I guess in our careers, um, the other aspect is like, will they continue to hike in a in a recession uh, if inflation stays elevated? So it's back to this classic trade off between unemployment and, and and inflation. So if we do see the you know substantial slowdown, and you touched on obviously Volcker taking rates to twenty percent in in the early nineteen eighties, um, but we did have a decade in the nineteen seventies where. I, I think the political pressure came on the Fed, and they 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 couldn't uh, be that hawkish uh, enough to to to, to rinse uh, inflation out of the system. How, how do you think that dynamic? Uh, well, like we're already seeing it with ECB raising rates fifty basis points, and immediately we're seeing weakness in the PMIs. You know, do you think uh, they'll have the? Do you, will they have the the the, the gumption to, to to follow through? I guess. Yeah. No. No. I mean, it's a great question, and certainly markets think that they won't have that gumption to to follow through because markets, at the moment, at least, are pricing rate cuts in 2023, which implies that the the market thinks at least the Fed will have to give up and start to cut rates because of a recession. My sense is, I think that the 
the Fed and central banks will all surprise us by how much growth weakness they will tolerate um, in order to bring inflation down. So I, I think that when you look at surveys of households across the world, inflation and cost of living, some people you know prefer to call it, is such a big issue that I think that they would be willing to sacrifice some growth in order to bring that down. Um, now, how much they would be willing to sacrifice is hard to say. Um, we could have a situation where they go on hold for a period of time when, when you have a recession, or they may even cut. But like you said, in the 70s, they tried the stop-start method. And in the end, you end up with a, a large inflation problem and you end up having to hike rates the year after by even more. So I think it's a, it's a delicate story. I also think that it also matters who gets unemployed as well. So there's a sectoral issue. And this is one of the challenges we're all finding at the moment, that COVID essentially was an overall shock to the system, but it also is very sector specific. There's big rebalancings everywhere. So certain sectors did really poorly, some did better. And, and you know, everything's trying to rebalance everywhere. Um, so I also think the, you know, the sectors that get hit the most will also be important. And that will also, you know, be uh, something that the Fed will look at. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if we go back to a couple of years, I mean, there was there was even talk of Fed, the Fed kind of targeting the unemployment rate of certain segments, like, um, black unemployment or whatever, you know, so, and obviously you do get that argument, well, of course they're going to clamp down on inflation because inflation impacts everybody, but unemployment will only affect those, you know, three, four percent who actually get unemployed. But it's a bit of a superficial analysis, I think sometimes, because obviously the Fed, well, obviously there's winners and losers from inflation, you know, in terms of debtors and creditors, um, but also it's it's the kind of the most vulnerable in society probably who will lose if, if obviously, if, if recession uh, uh, comes comes along. So um, that's where I guess the political, uh, uh, you know, considerations come into play. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely spot on there. Um, and I think that just also tells you that, uh, you know, we kind of a more of a nuanced view and, and this kind of the, the political economy of inflation is very different from the political economy of growth alone. And we see that everywhere. Um, you know, you can have a recession and that, that obviously is bad for governments, but inflation is much, much worse. That's why in emerging markets, um, they crack down on inflation so much. Like, why is it in Latin America they've already jacked up rates to 10 12%? Why is it in Central Europe they've jacked up rates uh, dramatically? Um, they kind of know what inflation can do. And we're seeing turmoil, obviously, Sri Lanka is like a, a big case at the moment. We see very visibly, but Italy, the Italian government has just fallen. In the UK, we've had a change of, of leadership, which I think to some extent is to do with the unease we have from the cost of living crisis in the UK. In the US, Biden's popularity rating has plunged. And, you know, I think part of that is just the inflation pressure. People just, you know, while the labour market in theory is, you know, everyone has jobs, people don't feel like uh, they don't feel rich. I mean, they don't feel like they're doing well. And, and, and that's partly because in some ways, we're already in a recession in the sense that people's real income has been falling. So when, you're, when your real wages, when your real income's falling, that's kind of what a recession feels like, your, your income's going down. Interesting. So, I mean, it's very much an inflationary story you're painting here. It's um, It sounds like it's become quite embedded. And that's interesting when you kind of look back a couple of years and the whole story was around the, the low inflationary environment, you know, debt, demographics, globalization, technology, all of these disinflationary forces. Do you think they're still there in the background? So I guess the question is, looking beyond that kind of six to 12 month time horizon, 
how do you see the the kind of the, the macro picture for the next kind of five to ten years? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I think those disinflationary forces are still here to some extent, and. The, the, you know, the big one that's hard to handicap exactly is um, obviously technology and the way, well, one is in general, obviously technology tends in general to be disinflationary. And I'll talk a bit in a moment about the types of technologies that I think are particularly uh, of interest for the next 10 years. But the other one, which I've been thinking a lot about, is the whole uh, impact of COVID on um, work from home. And to some extent, uh, what what the COVID shock did was that it forced the service sector to shut down or to operate without people because people were all infected and stuck at home. And before COVID, what had happened was all technology was geared towards uh, the manufacturing sector in many ways. That's basically where robots took over and factories are run by machines now. And as a result, you end up with very low manufacturing goods prices. Technology was a big component to that, as well as the rise of China. So you had two forces that really drove goods prices down. Services, you just, you know, services have generally been inflationary over the last 20, 30 years. That's where you have seen inflation. I think for me, the big question for the next 10 years is, has a COVID shock, uh, is it spurring on a technological change which will lead to massive services disinflation? Um, now, of course, right now, you know, we're, we're still dealing with uh, labor shortages and balances and we see inflation. But longer term, I think what COVID has done is it's it's opened up companies' imaginations to what they can do in the service sector without humans. And already you're seeing that. So, for example, in our offices in central London, you know, there's a um, some sort of takeaway place I go to. They used to have staff there, you know, who would serve you. Um, now they have these uh, kiosks, these booths, where you pay your you, self-checkouts, basically, what you have in grocery stores. You have that in restaurants now. Um, so that's one example of how technology is removing humans from, from that. Another one is in the labor market. So, uh, this comes to a personal experience, a macro hive, you know, where we started in 2019, just before COVID. We, you know, but our, our main growth has been during COVID. And before we started uh, macro hive, our idea was we'd hire people in London and New York. Everybody would come into an office, would work together. But thanks to COVID, suddenly we had to go remote and it forced us to think, actually, if we're remote, then we don't have to hire people in London or New York. We can hire people outside of London and New York. So in the UK, we have people working for us in, in Edinburgh, Coventry. In the US, we have somebody in Georgia or New Jersey or California. So suddenly the labor market opens up in a way which makes uh, the labor market kind of more competitive, which could be disinflationary as well, because you can now hire people um, with like non-London, non-New York wages in in like a highly educated sector. So I mentioned that as an example of a white collar, you know, high high education sector and, and the restaurants as the low education sector to give an example of how technology affects both. So that's disinflationary. So 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 I, I think that will be a really powerful force. The other technology I think that's interesting is the whole artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, and the rise of quantum computing. Now all of that is it might be too far away. You know, there's a lot of hype there. But if you do see a breakthrough there, that could be something very significant. Because um, the technological changes we've had over the last 10, 20 years, to some extent, has changed the world, but not sort of massively. It's not like, you know, 
inventing aeroplanes. You know, it's been more about entertainment, you could say, which isn't revolutionary in some ways. So, so I, I certainly think I think certain technologies are, you know, quite disinflationary. But then on the other side, there's some really powerful inflationary forces. You know, one is the limits to resources, you know, and we've seen that, you know, with uh, the oil crisis, energy crisis, that we have a limit to the resources. There's constraints either in terms of we can't access resources from different countries because of geopolitics or because the resources we're using, especially in the energy sector, is leading to climate change, which could, you know, lead to even bigger sort of issues. So we're hitting certain kind of limits in resources, which is inflationary, which requires a whole re-engineering of the energy system, which is which is inflationary. Then the other one is just geopolitics, you know, de-globalization at the political level, where China essentially looks like it's going its own way. You know, everyone's becoming more insular in different ways, so you get less trade between countries, and so that could also be something. So, so I think there's these multiple different forces that are sort of uh, you know affecting each other, and different sectors will be inflationary, disinflationary. But these are very powerful forces that we're seeing unfold in the next ten years. So, pretty much a mixed picture then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I also say it's mixed picture because I'm hesitant to be too bold to make a call yeah. here. Um, Uh, because there's so many moving parts right now. And what I do know is that the world's going to look very different in the next 10 years than the last 20 or 30 years. It really feels to me like we're, we're going through some major regime change in the last two, three years. And, you know, when you go through a major regime change, all you know is something big is going to happen, but it's hard to specify exactly what, what that will be. Yes, interesting. I mean, that's something we've been talking a lot about on this podcast. I mean, uh, the challenge of imagination, you know, imagining what the world might look like. We've got so conditioned to that, particularly the last 10 years, low growth, low inflation, low rates, and now it's it, the world does look dramatically different. Um, what, one of those other th factors which had been in that kind of disinflationary um, argument was demographics. And often you hear people just throw out the word demographics as a disinflationary force. But obviously, there are people arguing that Demographics will be an inflationary force. Uh, Charles Goodhart and his colleague ha have a book out recently around that. I mean, what, what's your thoughts on the demographic influence? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, for me, the literature is mixed on that. I mean, I read the book. I had Charles Goodhart on as a guest on my own podcast show as well. And I'm not convinced by the demographic argument. I, I Number one, I just think that um, just because we can forecast demographics relatively well, doesn't mean uh, it's almost tempting to then use that to explain everything and i just think the inflation process is so complex uh demographics alone is 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 hard to explain that all now the work you know we've done or i've done on this what i found is um it's not so much that an aging population uh leads to inflation um it's it's more what i found instead it's more about the young population When you have like a growing young population in your country, that tends to be inflationary. And when you don't, that tends to be disinflationary. So the work I found is kind of the other way around. Like I think Goodhart and all these guys were saying that, you know, as you, you know, as everyone gets older, you run out of workers. And then as a result, you end up with inflation because there's no workers left. Um, but I found kind of the opposite almost where it's, it's almost uh, the more young people you have, the more inflationary things become. Partly... I think when I think about it, it's because when you have young people, everything just becomes more dynamic. You have a lot of visibility for companies to really expand, grow, because you know, okay, they're going to grow into a future market for yourself. 
And in general, when you look at emerging markets and developed countries, you know, younger countries tend to be more inflationary than older countries, you know, and Japan is, you know, the classic example of uh, aging population. And what you find with aging populations is that just uh, demand goes down, you know, like nobody wants to invest anymore. Japan's offshoring everything, you know, because it's just a aging and dying economy. So it's hard to see that, you know, becoming too sort of inflationary. So if I had to lean one way or the other, I would say that if I had to say demographics influence inflation, I would look at the young population, not the aging side. Um, outside of that, I just think it's it's too complex to kind of map one to to the other. The other, the other aspect of all of this was obviously China and its integration into the, the, the global marketplace. And you touched on how you worked in Singapore and, and had put a lot of exposure to China. And obviously, as you say, deglobalization is a theme now, China possibly going its own way. And we're hearing a lot more about you know, uh, uh, nearshoring, I think, is, is the um, new expression. What's your perspective there? I mean, if we went back 12 months ago, nearly 12 months, you know, we had Evergrande, and that was a big focus in markets. It's kind of fallen a bit out of focus, but is China in the midst of a structural shift in its growth model yet or not? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I did spend a lot of time in China while I was in Asia, and I learned a huge amount there. And I think I think one important thing is, you know, it, it's I think it is very helpful to go to lots of different countries because if you're just in the West all the time, it's easy to stereotype countries like China, you know, and and to demonize them or, or whatever. And when you go to other countries, you realize how complex those countries are, just like the UK, where I live, is very complex, or the US is very complex. Um, and it's easy for other people to stereotype the US, for example. But when you go into the US, you realize a lot of nuance as well. So I think that's one one sort of thing I would say just, just ahead of uh, talking about China. What I would say about China is that they, they basically had a you know, debt-fueled growth model of sorts since the global financial crisis. And what we know from history is when you have that type of growth model, if the investments don't deliver returns, you end up with a bankrupt model to some extent, you know, and Japan found that in the, in the 1990s. And I think China is in that mode right now. You know, I think that their model is broken. And I think that the Evergrande story we had last year was one symptom of that. And I think... Um, and we're seeing echoes of that today. So Chinese growth is still incredibly weak. Um, now, of course, some of it is due to their zero COVID strategy. So this constant locking down and so on. But I think it's a larger issue that they basically have lost their domestic growth engine. So um, if you look at the domestic property market, it's still very weak. There's not much growth occurring there. Um, they have done some infrastructure spending, which the government can control. So there's a bit of growth there, but they're relying a lot on exports, um, uh, you know, to, to sort of generate growth. And the other source of growth they've had is production uh, related to COVID equipment for, for the whole world as well. So that, that's been a bit of a support to them as well. But I think overall, they're, they're in the midst of this big downgrading growth. The growth numbers have been very weak. Um, we have different models to track Chinese growth, and it still shows very weak growth, some of the weakest growth we've ever seen. Um, so, so I think that they're, they're, you know, everybody was talking about this China growth, you know, shock would happen at some point and it's happening now because it's China, they have a current account surplus. They own a lot of their own debt. You know, it won't be cataclysmic in, in the way, you know, like a Lehman type event. Um, it might be more like what Japan went through, which is you, you end up with a prolonged period of low growth. Um, but it's happening and I think it will continue for the foreseeable future. So 
So, I mean, you touched on from a kind of an investment perspective, a difficult outlook for the 60-40, say for the next six to 12 months. And I know you publish um, kind of an asset allocation model at MacroHive. So, I mean, where would that be positioned at the moment? And then secondly, kind of thinking beyond again, that six to 12 months from, from an asset allocation perspective on a multi-year basis, if, if somebody was managing an endowment or a pension fund, um, what would you be advising in terms of kind of multi-year uh, asset allocation looking ahead? Yeah, sure. So with our asset allocation right now, our overall view is to be heavily overweight cash and underweight every asset um, and probably neutral in commodities. And it may sound odd to say be overweight cash in an inflationary environment. The reason we say that is that, you know, for me, one of the most important thing with investing is to not get wiped out. <laughs> you know, it's a risk of ruin. You know, you want to avoid that. At all costs, you have to stay in the game and you've got to manage your drawdowns. That's kind of the, the first thing you have to do. Then after that, you can try to, you know, get those higher returns. And I think this is a year of so many changes, so many regime changes in markets, you know, type and interest rates going up, that there's a very high possibility that any asset you buy could have a large drawdown. Now, we've seen equities have a large drawdown. We've seen credit spreads widen. So credits had a drawdown. We've seen bonds, like government bonds have a drawdown. So this view of being long cash has actually worked out quite well. It, you haven't outperformed inflation, but equally, uh, you haven't lost money either. So you preserved your capital over this period of time. Now, at some points this year, we were long commodities, but we, we turned neutral just because of these recession concerns. So that was one long market you could be. Um, but now I think we're not in that environment right now. So, so my bias right now is, at least into the end of this year, to be underweight equities, underweight bonds, long cash um, is, is kind of my sort of you know bias. Um, so it's about preservation of capital. Longer term, I do think that we're going to have a less favorable equity environment than the last 30 years. So it might be more similar to what we saw in the 70s, where you had these wide ranges in equities. Um, or it could be like what we've seen in Italy for the last like 10, 15 years, where equities have kind of done nothing, or in Japan, you know, before Abe. Um, and the reason I mentioned equities is in the end, to, to make you know, long-term returns, you you have to be long equities, you know, uh, that, that's basically because of the risk premium, that's where you get the highest sort of return. Bonds act kind of as a stabilizer to some extent, um, and there might be opportunities to have some weighting there. Um, but, you know, in that environment, essentially, it tells you that uh, tactical investing will be more important for the next 10 years. So my bias would be either if if I have the capacity or if you have the capacity is to either tactically trade those markets on like a one-year basis or to allocate to more active managers. And implicitly, what I'm then saying here is that the whole like ETF, passive investing, that whole era is, is kind of coming to an end to some extent. I, I think the next 10 years will be a much more challenging environment where just being long persistently may not necessarily work. Interesting. And I guess within that whole active strategies, the whole area of alternatives, macro trading, trend following, all of those types of strategies are obviously would appear to be favored by this type of environment. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a whole array of these different types of approaches, discretionary, systematic, and, and so on. Yeah. And I know you looked at some of those types of models in your early days, isn't that right, in, in FX, in terms of, you know, I, I guess, presumably carry and momentum, those types of things. Um, you don't in, in, integrate those into your asset allocation at this stage. Is that something you might look at? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we are planning on integrating all of that. Um, 
you know, and I think that will be very important going forward to have those sorts of strategies. And I do think that um, there are like persistent sources of returns in momentum in all asset classes, in carry in all asset classes, in valuations in all asset classes. Um, so I think there is something there. And I do think that the environment we're in right now is is going to shake out lots of the the systematic strategies that have been exploiting some of these as well. So to some extent, these markets will become less efficient, which will open up opportunities to for those strategies to do well uh, going forward. So so I do think there's kind of clever ways of, of, of using those sorts of strategies going forward. And I know you've looked at crypto in the asset allocation models too, and obviously it was very much in focus maybe 12 months ago and now, but a bit more on the defensive and it always very polarizing. I mean, from a multi-year perspective, where do you think that fits in a, in a multi-asset portfolio? Yeah, if I do put it down sort of simply, I would say that I would view um, crypto like a high-risk equity. Um, so I'd allocate accordingly. So it's it's like equity-like risk. So you want to have some kind of exposure, but because it's very high risk and highly volatile, you have to size a position to like a relatively small allocation because otherwise it will dominate your portfolio. So I do think there is something interesting in crypto, something real in crypto, but I think a huge amount of it is, you know, is fraud and regulatory arbitrage, you know, but I think somewhere in there, there is something real. Um, you know, I think Bitcoin itself, I think is 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 probably the purest of, of the different kind of types of crypto asset classes. Um, and it reminds me a bit of the internet phase, you know, where we had these crazy, in the 90s, these crazy kind of internet companies, which most of them were made up businesses. Uh, but in the end, the internet did change the world. I mean, we're all using the internet now in some form or another. Um, it's just the valuations attached to them in the 90s were ludicrous. And so you had the massive crash thereafter. So I think crypto's, you know, is, is going through something similar where there's something in there that probably will be with us, you know, for the long term. But the valuations assigned to them were just were, were, were just ridiculous. And I guess, you know, thinking about different scenarios looking forward, I know you publish a what you call a Grey Swans report, I think every at the start of every yeah. year or at the end of every year, whatever. I mean, if you were writing a Grey Swans report for the maybe for the next decade as opposed for the next year, thinking about, you know, things that could be quite dramatic that are plausible, not as you say, not necessarily black swans, but but grey swans, what 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 would be the kinds of things that would come to mind? Yeah, I mean, there'll be a few things I'd, I'd think about. You know, one would be um, persistent inflation would be one great swan, um, because all of us, myself included, think in the end inflation will come down, you know. So on a 10-year horizon, implicitly, I haven't, you know, explained ever written this, but I do kind of think, okay, in the end, we're, we're going to get over the hump. Let's say we don't, you know, let's say we end up like Brazil or something. So that's number one. Number two, the other great swan is the return of uh, unionization and the return of labor power. So what's happened over the last 30 years is that you've had this big realignment where capital has all the power, companies have all the power, and workers have no power. So it's it's kind of like the capitalist, you know, dream. Um, the other, I think we could see a complete reversal of that. There's a real risk we have a reversal of that where suddenly... Mm. You know, companies lose a huge amount of influence in in, in governments. Um, they get sort of controlled in different ways or restricted, and then workers get a lot more rights everywhere. So unionization, 
minimum wages go up, um, gig workers get sort of more benefits, and and all of all of these sorts of things uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world in the UK and the US. So I think there could be a rise of that, and that often happens. And when you have these inflationary type environments, it suddenly changes sort of political alignments. The other one that is you know, I always kind of hesitate to, you know, to talk about wars and things, but I do think that there is, or civil wars, you know, there is scope for some kind of quite serious, like, civil unrest or a conflict in Western countries amongst themselves. You know, not many people are looking at that right now, but I do think that, you know, with the rise of pop- populism in different sorts of countries, you know, with the way countries are talking about building up their militaries as well, um, with uh, energy being such a big issue uh, amongst different countries. Um, also with the effects of climate change could start to really affect countries, like turn certain countries in deserts or not. I mean, that, that, that's kind of a volatile backdrop. So that would be the other one I'd, I'd be looking at. I guess linked to that, that whole energy um, issue and what we've seen this year with, with the Ukraine-Russia uh, war and the sanctions on Russia and then the whole concept of possible de-dollarization coming out. And I guess as long as we've been in markets, people have been predicting the end of the dollar as a reserve, global reserve currency. But, it, you know, obviously the dollar's in the midst of a multi-month, multi-year rally. Is that something you think about worry about or how do you see or do you think that that this this situation that we've had with the sanctions could lead to some behavioral changes uh, amongst reserve holders and could that over the longer term be be a, a significant issue yeah, I mean, I do think about this a lot. I don't think it's likely that the dollar will be usurped um, for a few different reasons. Number one, you need an alternative to the dollar. So the euro, I don't think is a viable alternative, you know, partly because Europe is just kind of held together in a way that I don't think, you know, many people find attractive. The renminbi is the other one. And I, I think China has its own block. You know, it's, 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 there's a Sinosphere um, and they have capital control. So it's hard to access the renminbi in that way. And crypto is just a marginal asset. So there's no way crypto could take over, you know, the whole of the dollar system. So one is there's no alternative. Then secondly, if you look historically, if you look at, say, the 1800s to the 1900s, uh, you know, the pound, you could say, was the dominant you know, fiat currency in the 1800s. And it was really around the First World War onwards that the pound lost that status and it got confirmed after the Second World War. So it was the interwar period was the transition away from the pound to the dollar. And to some extent, it was almost the UK's decision to give up the pound because they devalued the currency after the war ahead of the Great Depression. So they almost like intentionally said, okay, we're going to give up the ghost on on the pound to allow the dollar to become the dominant currency. Um, And you have to recall that in around 1860, 1870, that's when the US economy became bigger than the UK economy. So it was only like 50, 60 years years after the US became the biggest economy did it take over the pound. So that tells you that not only do you have to be the biggest economy, but there's a time lag. And there also has to be something from the dominant currency country to almost say, look, we, we want to give up being the top sort of currency. And my experience of the US is that they they don't want to give up the dollar as the dominant currency. For them, it's 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 uh it's a it's not only is it good for them economically, it's also good for them from a um, security or geopolitical political perspective as well. Um, so so I don't think we're seeing that from their side either. So so my sense is I think the dollar's gonna remain dominant for the next, you know, 
foreseeable future. And um, one, because there's no alternative right now. And second, just history tells us that it takes a long time and, and the US almost themselves have to kind of give it up. Yeah. And you touched on how the euro is, is not, hasn't become the alternative that I guess was the hope and intention maybe when it, when it, when it came, came into existence at the start of the, this century. Um, you know, so for some people, Europe might be one, one of the great ones. If you ask some, some other people, obviously we've a new, um, a new policy being uh, announced, anti-fragmentation tool hasn't been tested. You know, do you think over the next few years we might be into another round of euro turbulence and, you know, all of the arguments resurfacing about it can it be sustainable? Will we eventually get fiscal union? Where, where do you stand on all of that? Yeah, I mean, for sure, you know, I didn't mention it as a great swan is partly because everyone talks about it anyway. So so I didn't want to kind of mention something that's quite commonly said. I mean, I do think it will, we will have another existential crisis for Europe again. So, you know, if we look back, you know, 2010 to 2012, you know, we had one around sovereign you know, risk, you know, who would bail out the Greeks or even the Italians. Then in 2015, you could say we had the migration crisis, which really split Europe as well, when the Germans took all the Syrian refugees and other countries weren't happy with that. So that really kind of tested, you know, the integrity of the system. And today we have the energy crisis, you know, where, you know, there's supposed to be a European energy market. Now it's being nationalized. Uh, I mean, it's moved back to national borders and like France is nationalizing energy companies, which technically they aren't really allowed to do, but they've suspended those rules. So all sorts of rules are being broken around energy and energy is quite a central issue for different, you know, uh, countries. So this could be a big source of tension, um, you know, for Europe. So right now we have the seeds of how this could be explosive. Then on top of that, we know because of COVID, every country's debt levels increased. Um, at the moment, all the debt rules have been suspended for until next year, then 2024, they come back into effect. And so you have this path where suddenly all the debt levels will have to come down again, and then you could have another crisis un unfold, um, unless they agree that reset everything at higher debt levels, or the ECB comes back into to buy bonds. So I do think we're, we're in this state of flux right now. Um, I also think that uh, there's a tension around Germany as well, where Germany in some ways has been a bit more tolerant of importing Russian energy uh, in order to support its industrial sector. And that, you know, may come back to haunt it, you know, at some point, you know, so Russia may just switch everything off and then Germany could be stuck or, or Germany may be viewed as being too soft to Russia, which could bring like an American intervention of some kind. Um, so there, there's all these seeds that are there for another crisis in Europe. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if you look back, you touched on the 1970s and everybody looks back to the 1970s and immediately kind of focuses on the US and very US, US centric perspective. Um, and obviously in the, in the 70s, we had the high inflation, but very much a weak dollar. And, you know, Europe, and Germany and Japan were in high growth. And, and they had the, well, obviously, at least Germany had the Bundesbank in a more anti-inflation um, philosophy. Um, it strikes me, listening to you, that maybe if we're going into this inflationary scenario, it could be more centered on on Europe in in this this decade, with the dependence on on uh, Russian energy and and kind of the, the inherent challenges in in Europe. Um, so it sounds like quite a quite a potentially quite a negative outlook for the euro uh, on, on a multi. -year yeah, basis. yeah. No, I'd I'd agree. I mean, I think the European picture is looking at the moment quite quite negative. I mean, one one odd thing is that the Bundesbank has been relatively quiet about the level of inflation. Like normally. 
they'd be so so hawkish they'd be coming out all the time about talking about how interest rates should be much much higher now part of that is to do with personalities the new head of the Bundesbank is isn't as vocal as predecessor um, so the current one is Nagel um, but I also think it's just the the nature of the shock we have right now is really hurting German companies the industrial sector that they're almost prioritizing the German industrial company sector over in inflation um, and so there's this kind of conflict of interest that's occurring um, that is preventing the Bundesbank from being as hawkish as as before. Now, in terms of the euro, the currency, its path, um, you could still see a scenario where um, the euro may not necessarily end up faring as badly, uh, even if we have bad news in Europe, partly because the dollar is already quite strong. It's already rallied a lot already, so some bad news has been priced. Also, because the US you know, has also a large current account deficit as well. So, so that may hurt the dollar in the end. But, but overall, if we do get this kind of crisis type dynamic in Europe, for sure, the euro will go down. Um, but I just kind of temper that a bit just to say that the dollar or the euro has already weakened a lot already. Good stuff. I mean, you've been in the market since, what, the 90s? You've seen a number of these different kind of crises unfold. You started, you know, you said you mentioned uh, Russia was at the start of your career and then obviously dot-com and the global financial crisis and I, I guess a number of emerging market, market flare-ups over the course of that. I mean, when you look back at that, do you think, um, any, any lessons you think from, from an analysis perspective, any things that you can take away to say, okay, this is things to watch that, that you immediately focus on or are immediately kind of on your radar? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's a few sort of general things I would say. It's like One is that it's tempting when I look back to say that it was somehow easier in the past than it is today. Like today is the hardest time ever. But because I've been writing research and it's published, I look back at my notes from the past and I realize it's always hard, you know, it's today's not necessarily harder than 10 years ago or even 10 years before that. Every single year is incredibly hard. You know, sometimes there's some years you think there should definitely be a crisis and there's not. You know, everything's calm. You know, other times uh, there is a crisis when you're not expecting it. So, you know, because you're dealing with the future, like nobody really knows the future ultimately. We kind of have our, we hazard our guess and we try to prepare ourselves. But the future is obviously, uh, you know, a noble at some level. Um, so number one, I would say that it's always hard. It never gets easier to some extent. Uh, and that's part of the beauty and the challenge of everything. Um, it also tells me uh, the importance of being humble, that one thing I have found is that every time I think I've worked it out uh, and I think I'm in a great point, things then go terribly wrong or things completely change either way. And so that kind of tells me that every time I feel like I've worked out what's going on in the world, I, I, I get a little warning signal in my head to say, hang on, that's probably not going to happen, you know, partly because it's never good to have that level of certainty. It makes you ignore stuff that goes against your view. Also, if I'm thinking that maybe everyone else is thinking that, so it's in the price already, so it's priced in. Um, so the other thing is when I feel like I'm very certain about something, I kind of scale tempo back a bit as well. Um, and it works either way as well. When I'm very uncertain about something, but I have some inkling, I kind of lean on that as, as well. Uh, that way round. Then in terms of analysis and frameworks, you know, I think ultimately one has to be quite pragmatic, you know, so I think one should have a qualitative or discretionary framework, one should also have a quantitative framework, one should try to be as networked as possible and listen to lots of smart people, take inputs from diverse sources, don't ever be, uh, don't disregard another approach, like 
with someone with my type of background, it would be easy for me to dismiss like technical analysis or chartists. Um, uh, but I don't, you know, I think there's some value there and I, you know, I'm respectful to that approach as well. Um, so that's the other thing I've learned over the years. Like when I first started out career-wise, I was very kind of almost ideological about markets thinking, okay, you know, you've got to like look at fundamentals or you've got to look at these models, use econometrics, build models. And as time it goes on, it has gone on, you become less and less sure about what approach works the best. Yeah. Anything can happen, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So in terms of, yeah, it's, it's a good segue into kind of your, your process for research and idea generation. Um, I mean, do you read other strategists' views? Do you... Obviously, you read all them. That, uh, that you analyze macro data, but but what's the process from, you know, surveying the global uh, macro landscape to deciding one what to focus on, and then to distilling that then into trading and investing ideas. Yeah, no, that's a good uh, that's a good question. I mean, what, one is I, I kind of have a general framework on how to look at markets, which is, um, you know, first of all. I, I kind of generally have some sense of valuations across markets. So I have a number of different valuation metrics for each different market, for equities, the FX, the bonds. So kind of give me that gives me a general sense of what's expensive, what's not expensive. At the moment, almost everything's expensive, you know, although it's come off a bit. So so that's one thing. Then I look at the cycle. Um, so I look top down first, like where are we in the inflation cycle, growth cycle? And then within the cycle, what's the nuance? You know, what is it about inflation right now that could make it more persistent or not to really understand whatever the dominant factor, really understand the nuance within that all. And where I can, I try to measure things. So, you know, if people say sentiment is bearish or bullish, you know, measure it. Or are we seeing, is our markets pricing a recession? Find a way of measuring if markets are pricing recession and so on. So, so you know, qualitatively kind of identify the cycle, then be as quantitative as possible after that. Then I kind of look at shorter term factors like sentiment, positioning, risk appetite, those sorts of things. So so broadly, that's the framework I use. Then, uh, then I basically uh, expose that view to lots of other smart people within the team, with clients who are smart investors and stress test the view. And then I, I realize either some of my framework could be wrong, the inputs of the framework could be wrong, or I'm missing something completely that's outside of my way of looking at things that I need to investigate. Uh, and it may be the case that my framework isn't working, so I have to downweight that and put a larger weight to some other factor that's that's come come in. Um, so, so that exposure to other people and that, that conversation kind of reveals insights that I wouldn't otherwise have. And that, that's kind of just a healthy way of not kind of getting too... Um, to kind of stuck in your own head almost. Yes. And I know, uh, you know, as part of your offering, you write a lot about non-investment yeah. uh, topics as well. I, I mean, I think you had some famous quotes from um, Oscar Wilde recently, yeah. and I think you're a Shakespeare fan. So I, I know you read lots of different things. A couple of things on that, you know, how has that influenced your development on broadly? And then secondly, have you found insights from kind of non-investment yeah. domains for that, that have been helpful in investing? It's kind of like this Charlie Munger last yeah. work kind of a, a philosophy. Yeah, it def definitely. It's definitely helped me a lot. Um, it's interesting, you know, just after, just as Lehman's was going bankrupt, I was doing a business. I had a, a trip to see investors in the U.S., around kind of October 2008, so in the midst of the financial crisis. And for some reason, I, I ended up in Minneapolis and uh, in, in, in um, uh, Minnesota, you know, the, the state in the US. And 
I had some time to kill and I asked the, sort of the taxi driver to take me to the site everyone goes to in, in the city. And he took me to Mall of Americas, which is the biggest shopping mall in America, apparently. And I hate shopping malls, but he took me to it anyway. And I saw this huge shopping mall with, the, you know, uh, with like a theme park in the middle of it all. Um, and so I hate shopping malls. So I went to the bookshop and then I discovered all these uh, Shakespeare books they had there. Um, and the Shakespeare books... Uh, were ones where you had the you know the original Shakespeare language, but then on the other page, they turned it into modern English, and that allowed me to have that was my entry point to Shakespeare. It was actually two thousand eight onwards, and I just fell in love with Shakespeare because what Shakespeare did was that it allowed me to kind of see understand the human condition a lot you know things like paranoia fear all the things i was experiencing at the time because at the time you know the whole system was collapsing i was worried about markets my job you know my industry i was in but this showed me that like hundreds and hundreds of years earlier somebody was talking about all the things i was experiencing so what i found with shakespeare is that you know he was a master of understanding the human condition and relationships and such and we're so affected by that, you know, these emotions and these experiences. And it's really important to know that, label it, and then understand that. And that allows you to manage those emotions because often it's emotions that sort of drive us in market. So I find fiction like Shakespeare really helpful in, in, in that regard. Um, it's been so sort of very practically helpful. It's also been helpful in the sense that because you start to understand relationships better through reading Shakespeare, it helps you work with other people better, helps you uh, interact with other people, manage people better, which then enhances your ability to produce better quality work. The other non-fiction, uh, sorry, fiction, not fiction, but like non-financy type stuff I've been quite heavily at, in, influenced by is the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. So he's kind of the originator of Taoism, you know, which came in 400 BC or so, um, which is this whole kind of idea of kind of, you could almost say like going with the flow. So don't don't try to kind of go against the world, go with the world. Um, and there's, there's kind of, obviously it's a, it's a very old text, so it's, it's quite hard to kind of read. But a modern version of that I found, strangely, was a book uh called uh bruce lee by bruce lee the the kung fu artist and actor in the 70s he wrote this book called bruce lee artists the book's called bruce lee artists of life where it contains his personal writings and i realized that he was heavily influenced by Taoism himself uh and so he talks about how he lives that life um and he, he has a famous saying like be like water is like one of his famous sayings and you can see a youtube clip of him talking about that but you know, if you don't want to go into the original Taoism text, you know, this is the Bruce Lee books really good to understand that all. And um, and so that's been quite influential to me because it kind of allows me not to kind of get stuck with my own personal issues or ego to have friction against the world, kind of go with the flow. And that also, when it comes to markets, makes you more respectful of markets because often what happens with markets is I have my view of what the market should do. It does the opposite then I have this friction or the reaction against that and, and it leads to this dissonance and kind of unhappiness within me. But if you go with the flow, you kind of, you know, you, you aren't forcing yourself against the market. You're going with the market and it, it just everything becomes a bit easier for you when you do that. Mm. 
It sounds like a, a justification for momentum trading or trend following that you have to <laughs> respect the trend and and, 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 yeah, and possibly, stick yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, well, great. We, we're, we're up to an hour, so um, you, you all, you've already touched on some interesting content and books, etc. We always ask guests for you know for for their advice. I mean, what, what advice would you have to people in terms of you know influential books on the both on the macro investing and, and more broadly in life um, outside of the ones you've already mentioned? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's, you know, there, there's also great books out there and, and people, you know, I, I won't mention as many of the famous ones, but one famous one I think that is great is the Black Swans by Nassim Taleb or Anti-Fragility. I think those books are really, really good. So I would, out the famous books, I, I would definitely recommend that um, because I think what he does there is he basically just tells you how tail events happen, you know, and how smart people uh, don't know the answer to everything. So I think that that's an important lesson there. Now, the other two books I'd mentioned, which are probably less well known, but I think are really good. One is a book called The Dawn of Everything by uh, Graeber and Wengro. Um, these are written by, these are two great anthropologists. And what they talk about is how human societies behaved and acted um, in, in kind of like 10,000 or 50,000 years ago, where we have this perception of people being really primitive back then. But he argues that they were very sophisticated and they made active choices not to adopt certain technologies. So, for example, there were all these uh, historical peoples who lived, say, in America, like uh, Mesoamerica, kind of, you know, maybe like 10,000 years ago, where they had invented the wheel. Um, and they know they invented the wheel because they saw toys with wheels on them. But they didn't adopt that at an industrial level because they felt that it could change their relations with each other. So made that intentional decision not to use wheel for economic purposes because it would disturb their society. And they ended up having a, a very kind of libertarian, like progressive society. So I found that book very eye-opening because we have this view that, you know, we're at the peak of civilization, that there was like cavemen that we've evolved into this great, you know, but when you read that book, it makes you realize, hang on, people were as smart historically, and they made active decisions about how to adopt technologies which are different from ours, which had different outcomes to ours. And it also tells you how free they were, you know, how they didn't live under very authoritarian structures. And how today, although we say we live in a democracy, which implies lots of freedoms, we're, we still live in a very authoritarian structure in the sense that the government has a massive influence on our lives. You know, it's, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and historical peoples didn't live under that kind, that, those kind of structures. So that's a really eye-opening book. It's, it's kind of um, goes against the trend of what most of the people read. The, the other book I think that's very good is the, the Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, the Oxford physicist. Um, I think it's one of the best explanations of what science is. Um, and it goes into kind of how explanations and theory is what science is really about, and it's not empiricism. So it kind of goes against the grain a bit in terms of what we think science is. Um, it talks about the importance of explanation and has a really good way of explaining the power of science. Um, so I okay. think that's a great book as well. Good stuff. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. It's been great having you on. Um, appreciate all of that. So um, thank you very much, Bilal. With that, we'll hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Alan and Bilal, for a great conversation where you really managed to cover a lot of key macro topics that are so dominant at the moment. I really like the practical background that Bilal has, which not all macro commentators have, and also the fact that they look at the macro landscape through an independent lens instead of being restrained by a bigger agenda 
that many of the research desks inside the banks have to navigate. It was very interesting hearing that some of the larger investors are thinking about the current environment in a kind of existential way, which just goes to show how hard some of the traditional investors find it at the moment. Bilal's outlook for both higher rates and lower equity prices is of course not very encouraging for those running a classical 60-40 portfolio. And with his call for Fed funds going as high as 8%, if they're right, the pain may have some ways to go. But it kind of depends on where inflation goes from here, as part of their thesis is that it's quite normal to see rates go to the level of inflation. And speaking of inflation, I really enjoyed the section about inflationary and deflationary forces and how they may lead the current change in regime that we are experiencing, and in particular, how demographics is likely to play an important role, and of course also the discussion about China and what role their economy will play going forward. Finally, the discussion about how alternatives like trend following and even crypto should be used by investors and what Bilal sees as the gray swans in the coming decade, as well as the future of the US dollar was highly interesting. And tying the art of investing to Bruce Lee and his Be Like Water quote was fascinating. Make sure you go and follow Bilal's and Alan's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, it is so important that you understand what is going on from a global macro point of view in order to allocate your capital well. And we really look forward to sharing more of these insights as the series continue. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.